So I spent the first half of my time telling the story of Edward's life, and I want to spend the remaining time reflecting on some lessons we can learn from his life and writings. And in your little 18th century booklet, there are five things beginning with P. Five lessons for ministry and church life and church planting today that have come out of living with Edwards for six months. Sometimes I've woken up and I've almost seen his face lying next to me in bed with a wig on, and then I realise it's my wife. In fact, I did look at bringing, getting a wig to wear today, but it was 15 quid to rent, and it looked like something out of Pirates in the Caribbean. So it wasn't really Edwardsy enough. Um, uh, unlike Michael, whose sessions were, were like a finely sharpened arrow... This session is more like a collection of buckshot. So just ramming it down and then firing it, hoping I'm going to hit someone. Um, Because these thoughts on Edwards are very much thoughts from the trenches. Um, I've not studied in a tranquil ivory tower and emerged with a cool, elegant paper to give you. And I've studied Edwards in the live context of a young church plant with all the real-life stuff that you have to deal with. Countless emails, texts, phone calls, administrative details, sick children problems with the venue, ad hoc pastoral crises, difficulty persuading people to take things on, working around the clock to find new workers, always playing catch-up with communication, never quite having everyone fully on board. Have we got enough money to do this? Church planting. Dealing with the real church and sexual sins, spiritual lassitude, worldly attitudes to money, niggling differences of opinion, depression, and lukewarm response to preaching. Guess what? That was Edwards' church too. Except for the emails. (laughs) So these reflections are offered to church planters, church leaders, and all those involved in ministry, which means all of us. We all have a sphere of influence when we go back, and we're all involved in ministry. Ministry means service. And many of you are in planting, whether you put your hand up as an Acts 29 church planter or not. If you're in a church plant and you're serving, then you are church planting, aren't you? And these five um, smooth stones that I want to throw out that begin with P, uh, each has a kind of positive and a negative element from Edwards' life. Um, And I hope it will be of some use to you. The first one is preaching. And I I acknowledge that that does somewhat narrow it to those of us who are concerned with preaching regularly. But we're all involved in word ministry of one form or another. Um, Edwards positively has absolute devotion to the word of God, to ministry of the word. Although he's famous for his, his major works in theology and philosophy and for his analysis of, ch- of church experience and revival and so on, his, his core is, is studying the scriptures so that he might be a competent workman, able to handle them well and teach the flock. He had a special a desk that he'd had specially extended with lots of extra drawers in because, you know, paper uh, was hard to come by and the uh, filing systems were a bit, bit ramshackle. So he created his own system where he would keep all his notes and thousands of tiny little notes on the Bible to devote himself to the word of God. And I've read, Michael could maybe confirm this, that in a lot of Edwards' sermon manuscripts, when it comes to quoting a passage from the Bible, he just has a squiggle because he knows it. He's so immersed in the Bible, absolutely devoted to the word of God, serious work in the Bible And serious thought about how to apply it to people's lives. So positively, in the midst of all the demands on him and all the turbulence that we thought about earlier, and with 11 children, 
Edwards maintained an unswerving commitment to study, teach the word of God. In the midst of grand designs and dreams of scholarly work, he had an unswerving commitment to prepare sermons for a few hundred farmers and their families out on the western frontier. And what sermons they were, full of scripture, full of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to read a long quote, but it is worth your while, from a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. Let the consideration of this wonderful meeting of diverse excellencies in Christ, he's the lion and the lamb, induce you to accept of him and close with him as your saviour. As all manner of excellencies meet in him, so there are concurring in him all manner of arguments and motives to move you to choose him for your saviour. And everything that tends to encourage poor sinners to come and put their trust in him. His fullness and all sufficiency as a saviour gloriously appear in that variety of excellencies that has been spoken of. The lion and the lamb. So then he goes on. Fallen man is in a state of exceeding great misery and he's helpless in it. He is a poor, weak creature, like an infant cast out in its blood in the day that it is born. But Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is strong, though we are weak. He has prevailed to do that for us which no creature else could do. Fallen man is a mean, despicable creature, a contemptible worm. But Christ, who has undertaken for us, is infinitely honourable and worthy. Fallen man is polluted, but Christ is infinitely holy. Fallen man is hateful, but Christ is infinitely lovely. Fallen man is the object of God's indignation, but Christ is infinitely dear to him. We have dreadfully provoked God, but Christ has performed that righteousness which is infinitely precious in God's eyes. See how he's doing what Michael's talking to us about, uh, bringing Christ before people all the time. And he continues, here is not only infinite strength and infinite worthiness, but infinite condescension and love and mercy, as great as power and dignity. If you are a poor, distressed sinner, whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God will never will have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ, for fear that he is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. Here is infinite grace and gentleness, to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts of you, you need not fear that you will be safe, for he is a strong lion for your defence. And if you come, you need not fear but that you shall be accepted, for he is like a lamb to all that come to him, and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. It is true he has awful majesty, he is the great God, and infinitely high above you, but there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the creator. And he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor unworthy creature bold in coming to him. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies. But he will be a lamb to you. It could not have been conceived, had it not been so in the person of Christ, that there could have been so much in any saviour. And he goes on. Now, that's preaching, isn't it? One important lesson to be learned from Edward's preaching is he preaches the gospel 
as though it is the most important thing in the world. I was talking to a friend recently who's on staff of a large church in central London. And he said, you know, sometimes I wonder if we just preach the gospel as if it's a good idea. And people should think about it. Whereas the greats, Edwards and people like that, they preach it like it's the, it's the most important thing you could possibly listen to. It's the only hope for a lost humanity. Positive ministry of the word. But I want to ask a respectful question of Edwards' preaching. Is it always gospel-centred? And does it sometimes drift into agenda preaching? Is it... Always gospel-centred, sometimes does it, does it become agenda, pre- preaching an agenda. Now, a notorious example of this that we've referenced already today is the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon is uh, an incredible piece of rhetoric, an incredible piece of writing. It is an instrument of psychological terror, but it really does not have much gospel in it. He was preached, I think Michael said he was probably quite raging. He, I think he was. He was frustrated with what was going on in the church. He, it hadn't, things hadn't gone as well as he thought. So he wheeled out that sermon and whipped the people. Could it be that the intensity and force of that terror preaching was driven by his own frustration with the lapsing of the church? Could it be that the congregation had failed to live up to his high expectations and incredibly high standards for himself? But what congregation ever could? Could it be that Edwards was partly responsible for the suicide of Uncle Hawley, a sensitive soul with a family history of depression, who was crushed by the relentless logic and emotional impact of his nephew's preaching? Was Edwards sometimes guilty of manipulation in the pulpit? Now, those of us who preach regularly need to take heed For as James says, we will be judged more strictly. We need to take heed of Edward's unswerving commitment to the word of God. But we also need to take heed that at times his preaching seems to have been influenced by his own agenda, his own frustrations, and maybe his wider reputation, which was at stake. We need to beware the least whiff of manipulation, don't we? I know how difficult this is. You're in the midst of frustration with a sleepy church, Maybe you're struggling with anger, which is the professional vice of ministers. Your pastoral antennae are twitching with sins and lack of commitment. You're frustrated. You have a golden opportunity on Sunday morning to lay it on really thick. What a temptation. And this is actually quite complicated because you are supposed to preach the word so that you comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, aren't you? It is supposed to hit home. You are actually supposed to apply the Bible to the heart, not just give little homilies. Edwards was right to press the word of God on people powerfully. We should never rest content with tidy little messages that don't touch the heart. But how do you preach the word faithfully and well, but avoid the traps of manipulation agenda preaching? Are you checking with me? A few thoughts that have occurred during this. Firstly, Be prepared in season and out of season. Now, when I have not prepared my application in preaching, there's much more danger that my own agenda starts seeping out, like a bunch of seeping tentacles. That bit at the end of the sermon that just has a blank page. 
Be careful. If you're not prepared, you could easily drift into manipulation and agenda preaching. Secondly, preach the whole counsel of God. The expository series is a safeguard against cherry-picking texts and topics that are driven by your agenda. If you work your way through a section or a book of the Bible systematically as it was written, you have to deal with the matters in the text, or at least I hope so. You should be like the scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13. Like the owner of the house, he brings out of the treasure what is new and what is old. Now, those considerations of preaching the whole counsel of God and being prepared need to be, I think, taken into account with a ministry of the word that is centred on the gospel. We've heard a lot about this today from Michael. Paul summarised his proclamation in Acts 20 as repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He defines his ministry as to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So our preaching must be centred on the gospel as well as bringing forth treasures that are new and old from the store cupboard. We can't just say, well, what are we going to preach on now? Well, we haven't done Malachi before. Okay, let's do that. We need to be thinking with a bigger rationale about the diet of the church. Are we giving people the whole counsel, preparing them to understand the faith? Or is it just pin the tail on the donkey? We haven't done that text yet. Secondly, I think we need to let the text of the scripture dictate our tone in preaching. Tim Keller talks about using a balance of many forms of application. Application should include things like warning and admonishing, encouraging and renewing, comforting and soothing, urging, pleading, stirring up. There's a dangerous tendency for a preacher to specialise in just one of those because of your personality, your temperament. Some preachers are gentle and reserved and others are light-hearted and optimistic and others are serious and intense. Now, your temperament can distort the way you apply the biblical truth. So we always major on one kind. But over the long haul, that weakens our persuasiveness. People get used to the same kind of thing. It's far more effective when a speaker can move from sweetness and sunshine to clouds and thunder. Let the text control you, not your temperament. Keller says, loud truths should be communicated as loud. Hard truths should be hard. Sweet truths should be sweet. Another thought on this is preparing in community. There's a great line in the book Total Church about this. Not just you in your study privately reading the Bible and emerging on Sunday morning to give a great sermon, but a a richer message that's been shared in community with people throughout the week so that other people have spoken into the process. People of different ages and stages of life. Women, younger people, older people. Uh, so that the, the, the application is not just the agenda. Okay, that's some thoughts on preaching from Jonathan Edwards. Secondly, and quicker, piety. Piety. Now, remember, um, earlier on today, I shared that, that quote about Edwards' breakthrough, you know, where suddenly it was as if the, the sovereignty of God became sweet to him, and he was delighted in it, and he, he saw God and, and was, was warmed, and his, his affections were were warmed and, and fell in love with God. Um, a similar type of thing is a famous piece that Edwards wrote about his wife-to-be when she was quite a young woman in her early teens. Uh, and I'll read it to you because it's one of the, the most beautiful short pieces. He writes about um, Sarah Pierpont. 
his future wife, but it is an example of their piety. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being, in some way or other invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him, that she expects, after a while, to be received up where he is, to be raised out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and be ravished with his love, favour and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it, and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and sweetness of temper, uncommon purity in her affections. It is most just and praiseworthy in all her actions. And you could not persuade her to do anything thought wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness and universal benevolence of mind, especially after those times in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about singing sweetly from place to place and she seems to be always full of joy and pleasure and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone and to wander in the fields and on the mountains and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Now that was Edward's idea of a love letter. I think it's quite revealing. On the positive side, the devotion that this couple felt towards God. They loved God. They were lovers of God. And they, they meditated on him. They were able to withstand storms of life. They lost uh, a child. They were, as you know, kicked out of the ministry in Northampton. They had constant struggles with the congregation. Often the people withheld their salary for months at a time. Uh, they, they dealt with those sorts of things with a rare dignity because of their devotion to God. They loved God. And I sometimes wonder if we've lost sight of that a bit these days. Whether we still have devotions. Whether we have family worship. Why is it harder to do that now? Whether we're so too distracted with our constant communication with smartphones and other means of communicating that are impinging on us all the time. Do we, do we meditate now on the scriptures and on the Lord? And bring our hearts before him. I think their piety is a challenge to our sometimes superficial devotion to God. But the other thing about it is that it often seems to be involved in being alone. Going off into the mountains. Going off into the forests and the fields and praying and being alone and withdrawing from the world. Now that's not a New Testament kind of spirituality, I don't think. It's almost monastic. And sometimes the devotion that Jonathan and Sarah Edwards were able to achieve is only possible because they had slaves. And their membership of a privileged class meant that they could spend hours in the closet in prayer. I remember talking to Peter Lewis, who's a great scholar of the Puritans, about the English Puritans, and he was waxing eloquent about their prayer lives. They would get out of bed, kneel down beside the bed and pray for an hour. And his wife said, well, did they have children? He said, oh yes, but they had servants. <laughs> now we have to work out a real life type of devotion and piety that is... Dedicated, 
heartfelt and real. And I think the place where that's going to happen is in community, not by going off into the mountains on our own. Now, perhaps there's a connection between the intense individualistic piety and Edward's problems with ordinary people. And that's my third point. People. And within this, I want to think about people's humanity and their politics. Humanity. Human beings are complex. Somebody said to me the other day, who could understand the Byzantine complexity of the human mind and heart? So your ability as a minister of the word to connect with people is absolutely crucial. And maybe some of you, if you're real Edwards geeks, will need to hear this more than others. This is one of his problems. You would not have gone to the country fair and had a corn dog with Jonathan Edwards. You would not have had a pint of beer with him at the tavern. He was in the study, studying 12 to 14 hours a day. He didn't visit the congregation. Self-selecting, intense people visited him. So his perspective on the renewal is somewhat skewed. And his disappointment may be a bit naive. This is a frontier village. It's a bit rough at the edges. Most of the families were farmers. The young men of his generation were in the midst of economic crises. There wasn't enough land for them. They were staying at home till their 20s and 30s and older. Edwards just doesn't seem to understand those people. And then he has these high expectations. That everyone in the church would aspire to the same intense spiritual experiences that he and his family had. And he's hard on the body. He's always spidery thin and skipping meals and denying himself sleep and food and drink. It's, it's a bit too ascetic. At times he would sink into illness or collapse. He's driving all the time. Where, how, how in touch are you with your own humanity and with that of the people in your church? Because intensity and over-earnestness and directly impacts Edward's ability to relate to the congregation and win their hearts. I've got another great quote from our scholar, Michael. You are pastoring people, not ideas. Pastoring people, not ideas. That should go on Twitter. But Edward's, and sometimes people in the kind of reformed world, are into ideas. Not so interested in people. Now, because of this, gospel ministers, whether they're full-time paid or uh, uh, ministers in other capacities, need to win. We need to win people's hearts as well as their minds. It's not just about winning arguments. It's also about the softer skills, about understanding that the personal is political. Edwards doesn't understand this, so he handles situations badly, like the, the, the young folks' Bible and the communion controversy. He sometimes responded to his church by going to study and writing a treatise that was then published. The modern equivalent of that is a long email. You know, putting it all down. I've done this. You know what? It's almost never the way to deal with a human being. It's politically naive. You've got to look them in the eye. Smile. Hear them. Understand where they're coming from. There's almost always in a problem in church life, something under the surface is the real problem. You can win the argument and lose the person. There is an inescapable political dimension of ministry. Ignore it at your peril. This is why I think in some respects Edwards is a failed pastor. 
Now, I want to share a bit about church, for church planters here. There's a lot of you involved in church planting. My, and my first few years here in the church planting in Manchester, I was utterly naive about politics. Utterly naive about uh, internal politics in the church, about what relationships with other ministers meant. You know what? Church planters in this country are rarely breaking into a completely virgin territory. Most of the time, there are other churches and other people doing stuff. So there's a political dimension we have to be aware of. But you know what? Church planters often secretly believe that they are the only ones doing it right. Everyone else's ministry is a bit substandard. And the planter is going to set it straight. All you need to do is give us some people and let us get on with the job. We're here now. Now I made the ridiculous mistake five years ago of announcing at an early Acts 29 gathering here in Manchester that we needed some families and could any of the bigger churches spare some. And then I was surprised that none came. The main problem with that was that I was an idiot. (laughs) Why would the lead pastor of a bigger church send some key people to our church plant when I had no relationship with him? Why did I assume that everyone else has people to spare? In fact, many bigger churches struggle for lack of resource because they've got so many ministries to sustain. Why did I assume that families would want to leave existing networks of relationship and come and join our church, uprooting the kids and leaving another good gospel church to come to us? On the strength of what? You see, the main problem is political naivety and a degree of arrogance. And the major solution to that problem is investing in relationships. Investing in relationships. Because when there's a relationship, then there's trust, and then you can ask, and then you can understand. This week, another pastor in Manchester called me to ask for advice about getting money for a worker, different grants and and trust funds and things that are around, which we've been looking at, because we're in the same position as the church ourselves. And you know what? I gave him all the details. I gave him every trust, uh, some of the dates, the key players, how to approach it. I offered to write an email for him even though they will be in competition with us. Now, why did I do that? Is it just because I'm a great gospel-hearted guy? No. I did it because I've got a relationship with him. I went the extra mile because of the strength of our relationship. He's always taken the trouble to talk to me. And though we've had church people move out of our church and go there, he's respected our work and our leadership. He's created a relationship of trust. And that is political, isn't it? The thing that Edwards never seems to grasp. In the film Nacho Libre, when Nacho is frustrated about the lack of success and access to professional wrestling, Escuelito says, it's political, obviously. (laughs) And there are very few conferences in Jonathan Edwards where that will be referenced, I can tell you. (laughs) It's political, obviously. Church planners and leaders, ignore it at your peril. Fourthly, pride. Now, in the Christian world, certain sins are easy to spot, and we're very quick and brave to pick up on them. Uh, Sexual sin and addiction are usually a safe target, and problems with money often come out in the end. But pride is a lot more invisible and insidious, and therefore it can go unchecked. And yet, pride is at the root of many other sins. And so, those of us in churches, in planting in ministry of some form, must be super aware of pride and open to correction. 
dare I say it, pride is a peculiar temptation for church planters. Because much more than an established church, the plant can seem to rely on our efforts. It can easily be shaped in our image. And actually, our motives for wanting to plant a church or be involved in a church plant and be in that exciting core team phase need to be examined carefully. It is quite possible to to want to plant a church out of pride. Success in a church plant is quite conspicuous. It feeds pride. It can motivate you to want to be someone. The plant offers a platform to prove yourself, much more than an established church. The plant means you can be the boss. Some men don't like taking orders. They want their own train set, and they want to be the fat controller. (laughs) Now, Scripture does affirm the desire for the noble task of an overseer, but not the desire to be the master of the universe. Many planters secretly feel that the other churches in the area are a bit naff, and their church will be the one to do it right. Now, listen to Edwards on pride here. He's an expert on it. Let us therefore maintain the strictest watch against spiritual pride. Let none think themselves out of danger of this spiritual pride, even in their best frames. God saw that the Apostle Paul, although probably the most eminent saint that ever lived, was not out of danger of it. No, pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe, and it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. And is the most secret deceitful and unsearchable in its ways of working or any lusts whatever it is ready to mix with everything and nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel or of so dangerous consequence and there is no one sin that does so much let in the devil into the heart of saints and expose them to his delusions he actually says somewhere else pride is the inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit now because pride is so serious in ministries and in churches, Edwards, in his typical way, drills right into it deep. And I want to spend about six minutes with you on this. Edwards describes ten fruits and effects of pride, and these function as diagnostic tools for us to look at our own hearts. And therefore, I think important for us to spend a few minutes on today. Firstly, spiritual pride likes talking about people's sins and failings. Or talks about non-believers with laughter and contempt. But pure Christian humility is either silent about those things or grieves and pities them. Secondly, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect other people. The spiritually proud person tends to find fault with other Christians and is quick to discern their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home in his own heart that he's not inclined to be busy with other hearts. And he esteems others better than himself. Some people have great spiritual experiences, but they have pride mixed in. They go about challenging other Christians and disapproving of them, looking down on them because they're not on the same level. It is a Corinthian two-tier Christianity. Thirdly, Christian humility disposes a person to take notice of what is good in other people and make the best of them and downplay their failings. In contrast, spiritually proud people speak of almost everything they see wrong in others in the most harsh, severe and terrible language. They're quick to condemn other Christians' opinions, conduct or ideas. They think that they know best and must condemn people as a matter of principle. 
They don't respect authority figures or older people. Edwards warns that if we talk like this, how far off shall we soon banish that lovely appearance of humility, sweetness, gentleness and esteem of others above themselves, which ought to clothe the children of God above all others. Christians that are but fellow worms ought at least to treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ, that is infinitely above them, treats them. Fourthly, spiritual pride often disposes people to do something odd or distinctive in their behaviour. It might be their appearance or the way that they speak or their demeanour. Pretentious? Moi? Essentially, they kind of act up and try and draw attention to themselves and their spirituality. By contrast, the humble Christian doesn't affect behaviour so as to be viewed by others. He wants to be all things to all men and yield to them. He's not trying to be the centre of things all the time. Fifth, spiritual pride makes people inflexible and intolerant in their personal dealings. They're dogmatic, stiff, awkward. They won't bend. They're always right. They're not pliable or deferential to others' opinions. But by contrast, the humble person loves to comply with other people because he has a heart that is tender and flexible like a little child. Sixth, spiritual pride inclines people to divide and separate all the time and stand at a distance from others because you think you're better than them. It loves the appearance of being distinct, of being in a special group or an inner circle. Whereas the humble Christian delights in union with other Christians and being seen to be united with them. How is your relationship with other churches in your city? Seventh, spiritual pride takes a great deal of notice of opposition and injuries that are received. Such people are bitter, contemptuous of those that oppose them, and they make a big deal out of aggravations and talk about them a lot. The humble person does not respond. Our blessed Lord Jesus seems never to have been so silent as when the world compassed him round, reproaching, buffeting and spitting on him with loud and virulent outcries and horrid cruelties. See how Edwards always comes back to Jesus? Eighth, another effect of spiritual pride is an overconfident boldness before God and man. They don't rejoice with the reverential trembling, the proper sense of the awesome majesty of God, and the awful distance between God and them. They don't respect other people either, whereas scripture commends a proper fear and reverence and modesty. Ninth, Edwards says that another effect of spiritual pride is assuming too much. He means presumptuousness and arrogance. You act and speak as though you ought to be taken notice of and regarded. You interrupt people and argue rudely. You carry yourself as if you're pretty important. The person who is much under the influence of spiritual pride takes all the respect that is paid to him as if he deserves it. He expects people to defer and submit to him. He's quickly angered. He thinks he has the right to pass judgment and give his opinion on weighty matters with a judicial and dogmatic air. He puts on the airs of a master. Whereas a humble Christian assumes the air of a disciple. The eminently humble Christian, says Edwards, thinks he wants help from everybody. Whereas he that is spiritually proud thinks that everybody wants his help. Christian humility, under a sense of others' misery, entreats and beseeches. Spiritual pride affects to command. Tenth and finally, just as spiritual pride disposes people to assume too much to themselves, they actually also treat other people with neglect. They don't value the opinion of others or have much regard for their feelings. Interestingly, Edwards makes a plea for respectful dialogue with people we disagree with. He says, we must be very careful that we don't refuse to discourse with men with any appearance of supercilious neglect as though we counted them not worthy to be regarded. 
Christian humility disposes us to honour all people. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness. Ten signs of spiritual pride. How do you feel about those ten? <laughs> I tell you what, there's a couple of them, as I was reading them out, I felt convicted. Edwards has a way of getting into the soul and the heart and the mind that is just out off the scale. Now, how did Edwards get to be such an expert on pride? In part because of his remarkable ability to diagnose and observe the human heart, but also, dare I say it, because of his own struggle with pride. He knew it was an issue for him. He confessed it in his writings. He struggles with it. It's in the resolutions. It's in the diary. Maybe it was also in his eagerness to go into print. And, and even to suggest at one point that the millennium might be dawning in Northampton. And then trying to get the exegesis to match that claim. Now what is going on there? You know, if you think you're starting to do that with your church plant, press pause. Is it like the Achilles heel of the church leader who really wants his life's work to count for something? You are pouring everything into it, aren't you? You think about it morning, noon and night. You never really set this burden aside. You think about it in the shower, in the morning and last thing at night. And first thing, when a key person or a couple leave the church, you really feel it, don't you? How much is your passion for the church twisted up with your desire to make your life's work count for something? Friends, we've got to beware of spiritual pride. A few indicators for us. Do you have an inordinate concern over the outward appearance of the church? Its design, its website, its name, getting its name known in wider circles? Do you overinvest in people that you think will make the church flourish and consequently you are inordinately angry and upset when they leave? Do you feel an inordinate anxiety and frustration when the church fails up to live to your expectations? Do you despair when things go wrong at the church? Maybe church planters, do you have an inordinate affection for the distinctives of your church? Certain funny practices that you have. We do these things and no one else does. It's name. Because it's the name you thought up. Talking about it as a kind of identity marker. I had a whole section here about Azazel Church, which was called that because it's where one of the goats was driven on the Day of Atonement. I'm going to skip that whole section. I got to be carried away. Let me just finish by saying, <laughs> beware spiritual pride. It is the inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit. God have mercy on us. But let's finish on this fifth and final note, positive note, partner. I want to think about Sarah Pierpont Edwards in closing. I use the word partner not as a capitulation to modern usage, but to reflect the fact that she was more than just a wife, but a significant ministry partner, support, helper, and inspiration to Edwards. And I needed a letter that began with P. <laughs> uh, complementarians take heed. What a woman she was. Edwards could not have done it without her. Um, Edwards is reputed to have spent a lot of his time in his study and in his ministry, and Sarah ran the house. Now that meant 
raising, bearing and raising 11 children, one of whom died in her teens, running a large household that had frequent visitors travelling through to meet famous Jonathan Edwards, running farmland and procuring all the things for that, running servants and one or two slaves, dealing with all the stuff that came with having a family and homeschooling, as Michael kind of reminded of us earlier, and herself having a vibrant walk with Jesus Christ. She's a phenomenal woman. Phenomenal. So we are fools if we think if, uh, that our complementarianism leads us to think it's all about men and the big man leading a church. And if we overlook the vital role of women as gospel ministers. Steve Tinnis once said to me, some of my best men are women. <laughs> That's got to be tweeted, isn't it? Some of my best men are women. Men, you are fools if you don't do all in your power to employ and deploy godly women in gospel ministry in the church. Without Sarah's spiritual friendship, godly companionship, constant support, heroic running the household so he could study and write and pastor, Jonathan Edwards may well have been a footnote. On his deathbed, he called his daughter Lucy and said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me by the will, to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife, they were separated, he was in Princeton, and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. Soon after that, he died. Sarah then wrote to her daughter, Esther, my very dear child, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness, that we had him, Jonathan, so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. In 1758, Sarah too was uh, this time seized with dysentery and died at the tender age of 48. She was buried next to Jonathan in Princeton. So at the end of 1758, what did it look like the Edwards had achieved? Kicked out of the ministry at Northampton. A few years in Stockbridge with the Indians, which went pear-shaped. Started the job at Princeton and died soon after, from the inoculation, his vaccine, with his greatest writing projects actually unaccomplished. Yet, what kind of legacy did they have? In 1900, A.E. Winship studied what had happened to the 1,400 descendants of Jonathan and Sarah by the year 1900. He found that they had included 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers and the dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians and a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, including three senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States and a controller of the US Treasury. They had written over 135 books and edited 18 journals and periodicals. Many had entered the ministry. Over 100 were missionaries and others were on mission boards. All descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Winship wrote, Many large banks, banking houses and insurance companies have been directed by them. 
They had been owners of superintendents of large coal mines, large iron plants, and vast oil interests, and silver mines. There is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of this family among its chief promoters. Now, that's quite a legacy of a godly family who died relatively young. So may God give us the grace to live life as fully and as devotedly as Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Thank you.